the best way to be faithful with our doubts is to be honest about our doubts. And so doubt is only a problem if certainty is the expectation. But if certainty is not the expectation, then all of a sudden doubt is just another opportunity for me to cultivate a faith that is deeper, more thoughtful, bigger, and more mature than the faith I had before. Hi there, friends. This is episode 70 of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. My name is Matt Bruff. I'm a pastor and an author. And uh, on this podcast, we talk about uh, spiritual practices. We talk about what it really means to follow Jesus. And today's interview um, is just really incredible. I have Austin Fisher on today um, talking about doubt, uh, talking about the problem of evil. Uh, and some other problems that are raised that cause uh, doubt often in people. Um, But we also talk about the bigger problem of stuff and how consumerism might actually be uh, one of the bigger problems that gets in the way of faith and how that all works. So a really fascinating interview that I know you're going to enjoy. Uh, Now, before we get into that interview, I wanted to let you know about... uh, something that I'm going to be doing, or I guess maybe not doing. Um, This podcast, I've taken a break uh, here and there from this podcast in the last little while, just because of um, a new season in my own life, uh, taking a job with our denomination. So I'm working part-time with the Presbyterian Church in Canada, and also continuing part-time as pastor in uh, my congregation, Prairie Presbyterian Church. And uh, yeah, so that's been quite an adjustment. And um, I'm also diving into writing the first draft of my next novel um, in my, uh, what will be a four-book series. So um, that's, uh, yeah, there's there's lots going on. Uh, and so I thought, I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep going with the podcast, but I really have loved doing this podcast. Um, so I do want to continue uh, going on with the podcast, but I am going to take another break. And I know it's been really, uh, I've, I've only just taken one break and took about a month off um, in November and came back. And uh, but uh, but I'm going to take another break from the podcast. And one way of thinking about this, um, I, I noticed a whole bunch of podcasts were coming out with, uh, we're, we're doing season formats. So they would do, you know, season one and they do like 10 or 12 episodes or something like that. And then there'd be a little break and then season two. And, and I thought, oh man, I wish I had done that. And then I was listening to uh, Steve Ween's podcast, uh, This Good Word, which I highly recommend. Steve's been a guest on the show and uh, is a really great writer and um, and a great guy. Um, and uh, I was listening to his podcast, and he basically had said the same thing um, and decided, oh, okay, every podcast we've done up to this point is going to be season one, and uh, we're going to take a break, and then we'll come back with season two. And I thought, oh, thanks, Steve. I guess we have permission to do that. Uh, and so a shout out to Steve Weens for... Uh, the permission to go ahead and do that. So this one is episode 70, and this is going to be the last episode of season one of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. And then uh, I'll take a break for a little while. I'm not exactly sure how long, Uh, but then the the feed will fire up again uh, with season two. And that I've got some plans already. Um, I don't know if I'm ready to share those plans yet as to how these seasons are going to work and um and sort of what uh, what it's going to look like but my 
basic idea is that we're going to be a little more focused and uh, and have a bit more of a plan for where a particular season is going to go and however many episodes that might be, maybe uh, 10 or 12 episodes um, that'll that'll come out and uh, and it might be a little more focused around a theme or one or two themes, something like that. Uh, so I'm hoping that's going to also just be more helpful for listeners uh, to maybe go a little more in depth at certain seasons of the year. Uh, so that's kind of the new plan. We will see how that all pans out. And, uh, and I hope that when we get to that, it's something that you find helpful. In the meantime, if you are enjoying these podcasts or have enjoyed these podcasts over 70 episodes, um, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes. That really helps uh, other people find the podcast and helps with the visibility of the show. Uh, also, if uh, you're fairly new to the podcast, you can always go to spiritualityforordinarypeople.com and find all of the back episodes there. So all the way back to that first episode. And there's been some fantastic guests uh, on the show over the last couple of years. So I encourage you to, to go and take a look at those back episodes. And uh, for now, you can just uh, sit back, enjoy this interview with Austin Fisher. All right, today on the podcast, I have Austin Fisher. Austin is uh, the author, well, at least his latest book is called Faith in the Shadows, Finding Christ in the Midst of Doubt. Welcome, Austin. It's great to have you on today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, man. Yeah, uh, I was just saying, we um, I managed to almost finish the book. I have about half a chapter left, and it's really phenomenal. Um, so I'm I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you about about the book and uh, maybe too a little bit about some of the ways that you stay uh, connected to God. That's kind of what this podcast is about: is spiritual mm-hmm. practices that we engage in. Um, but I do really want to kind of dive into what your your book is about, um, and it's really just kind of just goes head on into uh, grappling with doubt and and what does that mean. Um, and really, I think, why is that important? Like, why is it important to engage with doubt? Or I was thinking about this, why, why not just close our eyes and hope for the best or just pretend like we don't have doubts and, yep. and ignore it, but, but your book really kind of just drop, dives in. So why is it important to engage with doubt? Yeah. So in my experience, I've been a pastor for probably about 10 years total at my current church for about seven years. And when I see people walk away from faith, and it does happen, um, it's typically not the people who had doubts. Um, the people I see who walk away from faith were usually the people who had doubts, and they were afraid to be honest about them until it was too late. Yeah. And so, I don't, you know, some people, we're all wired different, man. Um, some people just don't doubt very much. And I say, good for you. I have no desire to talk somebody into having a crisis of faith. But for a lot of us, it will happen. You know, the question is not if we will doubt, we will doubt. The question is what we're going to do with our doubts. Um, And that is where I I wrote the book because, you know, I was a pastor. I'd received all the training and got to this place where I almost walked away from my faith um, about four years ago. Um, Came through the other side of it, but just stepped back and went, man, I've been trained for years to deal with all this stuff. And I felt like I had no clue what to do when the doubt really set in for me. And so there are a lot of people who who don't even have any of the training, supposedly, that I've been given, who probably have no clue what to do with their doubts. And so I do think we got a few different options there. And one of them is you just kind of 
stick your head in the sand and, and hope it'll magically disappear from kind of inattention over time, you know, starve them of oxygen and they'll go away. But I just think we have this, I don't know, deep sense of whether or not we're being honest with ourselves. And when you're not being honest with yourself and when you're hiding from something, you know it. On this deep level, you know it. And so when we ignore our doubts, they don't go away. They usually just grow bigger and they start to rot and fester and they will eat your faith up from the inside if you don't deal with them. And so that's what the book is really meant to do is be kind of a one kind of example of how in Christian faith, we've always had a place for skeptics and Christian faith, you know? So me writing a book about doubt, it's not some sort of capitulation to postmodern skepticism. No doubt has been present in Christian faith from literally the very beginning. One of the stories I tell in the book is from the Great Commission. Yeah. Uh, the 11 apostles go up on the mountain in Galilee. They see the resurrected Christ. And we're told that when they saw him, they worshiped him, but they still doubted. How could somebody possibly see the resurrected Christ and still doubt? I don't know. It's a great question. We're not going to answer it today. I think the takeaway is uh, Jesus still used these worshiping doubters to literally build the church. Mm. And so people shouldn't think they have to choose between Jesus and their doubts. The church was literally built on people who lived the contradiction. Yeah, I love that. I, I, there was a point that you made in the book about the translation of that, because I think it's the... Uh, they worshiped him, but some doubt it. That's what most translations say, I think. Yeah. Um, but it can be read in a slightly different way. Can you just, yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of translations, I think NIV, you know, says they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. You know, we all read, well, Thomas, oh, you know, Thomas, was doubting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. probably Thomas. <laughs> but it, in reality, uh, it, it looks like the Greek grammar actually favors a more inclusive reading of the whole group. So it's that they saw him, all of them, they saw him, and they all worshiped him, even though they were all uncertain. Right? So it's not that some worship and some cough, cough, Thomas doubt. It's that they all worship, even though they're all uncertain. So we can worship and we can be faithful yeah. even when we're uncertain, which is good news because we're humans and certainty is not in the cards for any of us. Yeah, that's uh, that's really good. I love that it's got just both of those things going on at the same time. They're all worshiping him and they're all, mm-hmm. you know, not sure. Yeah. And isn't that all of us? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> Um, and, and, and there's all kinds of examples in the scripture in the New Testament, Old Testament as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but Thomas is a is a good example of that. Yep. Or the man that you mentioned this in the in the book as well, the man who comes to Jesus yep. um, and says, "I believe, help my unbelief." It's a mm-hmm. famous story as well. Um, so yeah, it's it's been there since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask you? Can you tell us a little bit about like your own story? Like what what led to that? to that moment of thinking, am I walking away from faith? Absolutely. So two separate things. Um, The the first one was less, uh, and I found that this is typically the case for people. It's less a single specific doubt, and it's usually this overwhelming feeling of feeling overwhelmed. Like you just get barraged by all these different voices, and the sciences are telling you this, and we got all these different religions, and even within Christianity, we got all these different denominations, and even Christians can't agree on this stuff. I think we, we've got to the point in particular, no generation has had to deal with the enormous influx of information like we have. I mean, we have had to deal with more discoveries and challenges than any generation in the history of the world. And so as all that piles up, I think on a deep gut level, sometimes we just begin to wonder if we're all making it up, you know? Mm. Um, And then even more so, I think our faith gets set up to fail by the expectation of certainty. And so what I mean there is um, a lot of us have been conditioned to think of faith as a binary choice between certainty and unbelief. 
Okay. So I have to be certain that, you know, Jesus was God was resurrected. The Bible is, you know, whatever words we want to put it in every single article of Christian faith. I got to be certain about all of it, or I don't believe any of it. And so a lot of times as we get older and we learn, we realize that we can't be certain. It's just not in the cards. And it's not because we're sinful. It's because we're human, right? And I think that's a really important point to make. And so if we realize that we can't be certain and we think we can only have faith if we are certain, then we think we have to walk away from our faith, right? And so a lot of people get set up to fail. So that was the kind of bigger phenomenon that went on that started to make me question things. The specific thing was, as it's been throughout Christian history, the problem of evil, you know? And I have a couple of chapters on the book about it. And um, one of the distinctions I try to make is the problem of evil is really such a cold, rational way to put it, you know, because when you're standing before um, the grave of a kid or you're having to talk to a, a victim of rape or whatever, like evil is no longer a problem. It's a crisis and it should be a crisis. And, and there are moments in life where we feel in a more acute way the world's endless, relentless suffering. And we ask ourselves, man, I only know so little of it. You know, I'm so sheltered by my little bitty place in space and time. If I were to really have to shoulder the full burden of reality, all of creation suffering, all the infant graves, all the abuse, all the cancer, all the whatever, would I still be able to believe? You know, and luckily none of us have to bear the full burden of reality because the little bitty bit we get is usually too much. And that, you know, in a nutshell is what brought me to the place where I just said, you know, um, there's so much hate and hurt in the world that it is difficult to believe in a God of infinite goodness because that's what Christianity proclaims. It's not a God that's kind of good, you know, and, you know, he's nice to say, no, it's a God of infinite beauty and goodness. And how can you square a God of infinite beauty and goodness, the God of Jesus Christ, with the world's horrendous, relentless evil? Right. Yeah. And so then how, how did you do that? Like you're still a pastor, right? So. As of now, yeah. <laughs> After Sunday. Um, well, when it came to the problem of evil specifically, I kind of came to this place where I, I realized that the only thing worse than having to deal with the problem of evil is not having to deal with the problem of evil, right? So, you know, given that evil does exist in the world, and it does, um, if you don't have evil as a problem, because let's say there's not a God or the gods, or it doesn't even have to be Christianity, any sort of religion, you know, that says there's some sort of standard that is good. Um, if there's not a God, then there's really no such thing as evil, you know? And so uh, an infant that's killed isn't evil. It's just another thing that happened. It has the same moral value as an acorn dropping off a live oak in my backyard. And so, you know, given the horrendous reality of evil, I'm actually grateful for faith in which evil causes a crisis instead of a shoulder shrug. And I do think those are our options. And so all things being equal, the only thing worse than the problem of evil is not having the problem of evil. And so it's, you know, a, a really horrendous crisis that I gladly live with because it's certainly better than my other options. I don't know if I could be a human and not call things evil. Um, and so that's evil, but bigger picture, um, you know, it's, it's finding a way, the best way to be faithful with our doubts is to be honest about our doubts. And so, Doubt is only a problem if certainty is the expectation. But if certainty is not the expectation, then all of a sudden doubt is just another opportunity for me to cultivate a faith that is deeper, more thoughtful, bigger, and more mature than the faith I had before. So I began to see my doubt as an opportunity instead of an obstacle. We can look at our world as super easy to just see things that are terrible and horrific. And I actually want a good God who is going to be against that. 
Um, and that to me was, was great the way you pulled that out to, to say, well, that, those are kind of our choices. We can either just say, well, this is just the way the world is, whatever. There's no God and there can't mm-hmm. be people. There's evil. Or we can say there is this good God and that's how we know that God is resisting this and we're called to resist it too. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's where, um, so I did a, it's kind of a debate um, last week with a guy who's an atheist. He'd been a Christian, uh, had then become an atheist and it was really great. He was super smart. Um, but this was one of the things we talked about a lot was um, a lot of the morality that we take for granted, you know, be it something as simple as like justice and sure. the dignity of all human beings. That's not just like a, a universal morality that is obvious when you look around the world. If anything, <laughs> what the world tells us is that all humans are not created equal and are absolutely not self-evidently <clears throat> um, given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, I can't think of a bigger bunch of bull than that. Um, those moral values are values that Christianity gave us. And yeah. so you know, what we talked about a lot is um, the abuses of, of Christian faith that are, are well pointed out by a lot of people, um, violence, abuse, war, manipulation. Those are a scandal to the modern mind only because Christianity gave the modern mind its moral vision before Christianity, that was just, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That was just business as usual. Those things are a scandal because Jesus said they were wrong, you know? And so I, I think that's a really important point for people to grasp sometimes in our kind of, uh, I don't know, enlightenment rationalism. Um, the moral values that, that we hold so dear, they're not, you know, enlightenment values given us obviously by rational reflection. They're values that Jesus gave us and they don't exist without Jesus. Well, yeah, and especially if you if you go to the value of forgiveness. I mean, people actually think that that is kind of a modern Western value that we yeah. ought to forgive. And even though they may have limits on that, right, there's certain things that we will not forgive as a society or as a culture, but on sort of basic interpersonal. But that just didn't, that wasn't even in the thought process that this is something that should happen. And that probably took centuries after Christ for that to really be something that became more core to society. Yeah, but its root is in Jesus, which is, yeah, it's it's fascinating to look at that. Um, that would have been an interesting debate <laughs> to listen to. Yeah, I think it um, comes out tomorrow on uh, Unbelievable. Okay. It's a British show. It's it's a fun one. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that'd be great. Um, if there's a link to it, we can maybe try to find that. Is there? Is there? A, I'm assuming it'll be. It, on. it should come out tomorrow. Um, okay, just unbelievable. Yeah, right on. Um, there's also a couple of other things, some other major things that cause doubt as well. So can you maybe just tell us what those are, at least what you highlighted in the book? I mean, it's all kinds of things, but you had some pretty major ones. Okay, yeah. Um, so um, I think the big issues I tackle, one of them uh, is a chapter called Silence. And so the basic premise of, of that chapter is um, I think for a lot of us, you know, we can deal with the suffering. Like we realize we're not getting out of life alive. <laughs> and so we're okay with that. And we're okay with living with the unanswered questions. What we're not okay with is when all we're asking for is like a whisper, you know, God, that's all we want. And instead all we get is silence. Mm. And, and I think that for a lot of people is what ends up pushing them away from faith is again, they're not greedy. They're not asking for a lot. They're not asking for burning bushes for resurrected friends. They're just asking for something and they get nothing and they get nothing over a really long period of time. So I think that's an enormous obstacle to faith. And so I offer just uh, a couple of little thoughts in the book about that. One of them is called trait negativity bias, which is just a measured psychological phenomenon that tells us that we, well, that negative information weighs heavier on the brain than positive information does, you know? And so that's why 
you can get a hundred compliments about something, um, but you will only remember the one that you're a preacher, so you know. But all the the, the compliments, they were all right off, but you will never forget that one really nasty email you got six years ago from so-and-so that said, you know, blank, blank, blank. We're just all wired like that to kind of see the tragic, and we're wired like that for all sorts of evolutionary reasons. Um, and while that is a useful kind of survival tactic, I think it also makes us blind in some sense to what God may be doing in the world. Um, because, for example, a loved one dies, and we wonder why God didn't do more. A loved one gets better and we're thankful the medicine worked. You know, so God is in this weird place where God could be, you know, answering prayers all the time or he could not be, but it would all kind of look the same to us because we're wired to see the tragic, you know? And so, and there's more to be said, and I'm not trying to get God off the hook. God can get himself off the hook, but I think that is a helpful thought. Um, a second, obviously, huge one is science. Um, I was gonna say, you just so, mentioned evolution. There you go. Yeah. So I'm actually preaching on that this yeah. week. So All right. We'll see if I still have a job. Um, <laughs> yeah, modern science. I have found that um, it's really interesting when it comes to like physics and stuff like that in the universe. Um, most physicists, you know, see the universe as a beautiful, ordered place, um, and Christians love stuff about physics for the most part. It's great. When it comes to biology, you know, for biologists, the world's a, a nastier place where life uh, is always purchased at the cost of death. And the universe or the world is one kind of relentless cycle of uh, predation and uh, rebirth. And that's all it is. And so biologists typically have a harder time with the idea of God than physicists do, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, and I think Christians have really struggled with what to do about evolution um, on all sorts of levels. And it poses some really difficult questions for um, Christian faith, specifically and obviously for a literal reading of Genesis 1 through 2. And so what I try to offer is, first off, kind of a lay of the land for what the modern sciences are telling us, because I've actually found a lot of people don't know what the modern sciences are saying. And then blaze a path to help people see that you don't, you don't have to accept the modern findings of science if you don't want to, but we certainly can. All right, So you don't, you don't have to believe that humans evolved from a population of about 10,000 hominid ancestors in East Africa 200,000 years ago, which is what the sciences are telling us. You can believe that there was a single primal pair in Adam and Eve that were created a few thousand years ago, but you don't have to. Right? You really don't have to read Genesis like that. And so that's all I'm trying to do is open up some space for people to see that if they want to read Genesis 1 through 2, literally they can, but they don't have to. And there's not a single claim that modern science has made that is not compatible with Orthodox Christianity. There's really not. Yeah, you had a, you had kind of a, a big claim about Augustine um, or a quote about Augustine. Yeah, um, and I'm trying to remember what it is. You, you, I can tell you know what I'm talking about. So. Yeah, so Augustine <laughs> he wrote a commentary on Genesis called um, "On on a Literal Reading of Genesis," which is hilarious because you read it and it's the most not literal thing you've ever read in your entire life. Um, so right. literal meant something very different to Augustine than it does to us. And so Augustine is actually a really great person to go back to when it comes to Genesis because. Obviously, Augustine was, you know, an ancient thinker, so he believed in ancient science. You know, he believed that the earth was the center of the universe, that it was flat, that the sun and moon and stars revolved around the earth, so on and so forth. And so he was wrong about a lot of things. But he was remarkably forward-thinking when it came to the relationship between faith and science. And I don't remember the exact quote, but there are a number of times when Augustine's like, look, um, when we come to some area where science seems to definitively prove something that contradicts a literal reading of Scripture, then we should probably go back to Scripture and ask if a literal reading is actually required. 
right? right? And that's and that's why Augustine was such a good interpreter, is he picked up on the fact that if we want to honor the authority of the Bible, that doesn't mean we read it all as literally as possible. Honoring the authority of the Bible means reading as the writer intended. And there are obviously all sorts of places where the writer doesn't intend for us to read literally. And I think there are a lot of cues in the text that would suggest that Genesis 1 through 2, and really Genesis 1 through 11, is one of those spaces where we certainly don't have to read literally, and we're probably not supposed to. Right. And I think you rightly point out in the book, like, doing a literal reading of scripture is a really new idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, like, the reformers argued, I think, pretty convincingly for a plain reading of scripture, but they didn't mean a literal reading when they said a plain reading. Great Um, distinction. So, uh, like, and and you give examples, like, uh, looking at the Psalms, like, you can't read poetry a plain reading of poetry, you have to engage with metaphor. You have to engage with with what uh, with imagery. You can't just say, "Oh well, we're talking about hills yep. dancing here." So clearly, they yeah. actually dance. Um, yep, <clears throat> yep. We um, have to read I, as the writer intended. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was really good. Um, you had a couple of things to say about fundamentalism in the book as well, and this I think relates to um, relates to science as well. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a little bit about how fundamentalism tends to approach the Bible in sort of an almost scientific way rather than maybe a theological way or a, yep. or a proper biblical way. So mm-hmm. um, can you say more about that? Like how does, how does that work? So it goes back, that distinction you just made is so helpful. Um, you know, the reformers, you know, when they're wanting to go back to a plain reading of scripture, you know, they're, they're pushing back on some of the evasion of Scripture through these, you know, absurd hermeneutical gymnastics that had, had happened. Um, and that was great. Um, this kind of rigid biblical literalism is what I would call it. It does come about, you know, a few hundred years after the Reformation, and it was an attempt to take the scientific method, which, you know, uh, the church saw the science applying to the natural world and making all these great discoveries, and going, hey, if we could take the scientific method and apply it to the Bible, then we could get truths that are every bit as objective as the truths that modern science is kind of finding. And so they try to do that. um, But the problem is, you know, uh, again, a lot of scripture just can't be approached with rigid biblical literalism. You actually end up really violating the text in a lot of different ways and backing yourself into wildly unnecessary corners um, because you force yourself to read the text literally. I mean, one of the best examples to, you know, get away from evolution because it's such a hot button deal for people Galileo is obviously one of the easiest ones where, um, you know, for all human history, humans believe the earth was the center of the universe. Um, Galileo was a Christian and he comes along with his astronomy and math and says, no, you know, it looks like the, the earth is actually revolving around the sun. Uh, and a lot of people in the church used scripture to rebuke him. You know, there are a couple different Psalms, I think Psalm 94 and 104, or maybe 93 and 104 say, you know, God has founded the earth on its foundations and it cannot be moved. You know, and so people went, well, there you have it. Scripture says the earth cannot be moved. Anybody who says the earth moves around the sun is rejecting the authority of Scripture. And we look back and go, oh, my gosh, like how could anybody try to read it like that? But are there ways that we're doing the same thing? I think there are. And that's, that's the struggle with fundamentalism. It's less a particular package of beliefs, and it's more a way of believing. You know, it's more spirit than it is form. And so it's this desire for certainty usually uh, employed through rigid biblical literalism. That is a very recent development that the reformers, I think, would uh, uniformly reject. Certainly Augustine, who was kind of a godfather to the reformers, would have rejected it. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, for me, where this connects to doubt, and it's where you do this in the book, is um, 
is kind of giving permission for people to say, oh, I don't like for some people, if they hit sort of a crisis, maybe evolution is that crisis or some part of science or something, they, they think, oh, well, to go with what modern science says, I then have to, like, I, I'm jettisoning my faith. Like, I've got to give up on everything um, because they just don't see that there is a compatibility between these. Because we, certain parts of Christianity have set these things up in total opposition to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, I think that, am I right in saying that that's kind of how this is the connection point to, to doubt? Absolutely. Right. Um, okay. Fundamentalist habits of mind. I think are incredibly dangerous um, because again, man, there are all sorts of legitimate reasons to have a crisis of faith. Like every time a child dies, we should have a crisis of faith. Um, why would we set up unnecessary crises of faith for people when faith can already be so hard? And a lot of the issues regarding faith and science for me are that they're wildly unnecessary reasons to lose your faith. You know, just like God knows how many people, you know, lost their faith because the church refused to come around on, well, you know, maybe the earth does revolve around the sun and those Psalms aren't meant to be read literally. Um, I I do think there are a lot of ways where we're forcing the same um, really unnecessary decision upon people. So I just, you know, I know for me, my, my kids and my grandchildren, my goal is to pass them, to hand them a faith that is ancient and tested, but also flexible and evolving. Because I cannot live with the idea of causing my little boys to lose their faith over something that wasn't essential to the faith. Right. And we're doing that to people. Yeah, that's true. Um, that leads right into this, this quote. This is the opening, opening sentence from uh, chapter nine of your book, um, where you wrote, fundamentalism and science pose gravely unnecessary threats to modern Christianity. But the gravest threat to modern Christianity is neither fundamentalism nor science but stuff. Yes. <laughs> so so, that so was tell us about of, consumerism yeah. now. <laughs> that was one of my favorite um, chapters because a lot of this stuff, you know, is it's stuff people have written on a lot. I, I actually thought this was probably the, the most unique contribution that I hope the book made. Um, and it, it was really from, there's the text in First Timothy, you know, and it's well known where it says money is the root. And again, some translations say of all sorts of evil, but I think it's probably money is the root of all evil. Probably really is the best way to read that. And from it, or, or, and it has caused many people to walk away from the faith. Mm-hmm. And it's always shocking to me that we don't make that connection to go, yeah. oh, so people don't just walk away from their faith because they had questions about evolution or religious pluralism or the relativity of morality or whatever it is. No, people walk away from their faith because they love money. It couldn't be said clearer, and yet we always ignore it. Um, and so or we there are, read it metaphorically. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> yeah, that, these we really won't take that part stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so there are all sorts of you know numbers that once you kind of put them together, you go, "That's so interesting." Um, but basically, if you look at the pockets of the world that are the most unbelieving, right, the the most irreligious, however that fleshes itself out, it's always affluent rich people who have the highest numbers of unbelief. Now, is that because, you know, poor people are stupid and ignorant and they have all these primitive traditions? Well, that's the way us rich, educated people have typically interpreted the data. But I think another interpretation would be that, um, I don't know, Paul was right and stuff makes us walk away from our faith. Now, that's all vague. So how does stuff make us walk away from our faith? Um, I think on a deep gut level, we want stuff. And so we perceive anything that would threaten our stuff, and Jesus would be a supreme threat to our stuff if you read the Gospels, um, as something that we would not 
be particularly, you know, prone to want to believe in. You know, and so if God questions my right to get all the stuff I want and do whatever I want with it, then all of a sudden God is a piece of the equation that I don't really want to be there. And so on this deep gut level, I don't want to believe in God anymore, right? And so then I'll just start to not believe in God anymore, not because it was rational or I thought about it or I had an existential crisis, but just because it's inconvenient. God becomes inconvenient. And I think that's the way our beliefs actually function. And there's a lot of data telling us that, that we're not near as rational as we all think we are. Right? We all love to think that we, we walk through the world each day and we weigh the data and we make these very objective decisions. But all the studies have told us that we basically make gut decisions instantly. And then what we call rationality is actually a post hoc justification of why whatever we wanted is actually what is right. right. <laughs> um, and it's humbling and frustrating, but that is the way we work. And so I think the same is true for faith. And that's why really educated, affluent, rich people tend to believe in God less. I don't think it's because they're smarter. I think it's because God is more inconvenient for them. Well, and by them, I mean us Americans. <laughs> Just be right. clear. And, we we and are the rich of the earth. Yeah. And Canadians, yes. Yeah. It's okay. You can take us down with you. It's fine. <laughs> uh, uh, so, but then what do you do? Um, like that, uh, I'm, I'm with you, but I also went to Disney World. Um, and... Uh, you know, I go to Starbucks. Me too. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's one of those things where, again, to kind of continue the idea, if, if, if just thinking about it would really change anything, then I think we would have had a lot more change in the history of humanity. Um, so sure. thinking about it's really not going to do anything. Um, I think the remedy is you, you literally have to start giving away more of your stuff and, <laughs> you know, and, and it can't just be something where you do it when you feel like it, right? That's what we've learned about ourselves as humans is we need structures that force us to do the good because we don't naturally do the good. See, I'm not reformed, but I still have some reformed sensibilities. Yeah, uh, we're, we're mostly totally depraved. And uh, so we need things in place to force us to do the good that we don't want to do. And so, you know, if you're having a crisis of faith, what I love to tell people is you could sit around and you could think about it and that's fine. Do your Kierkegaard impersonation and have an existential crisis. Or you could just start giving away more of your stuff. And I think you'll find that it fans the flame of your belief in all sorts of unexpected ways. It's been my experience anyway. Like you, you, you struggle with your faith. And here's what we do. You know, give away half your stuff. Let's say like Zacchaeus did. You don't have to be like the rich young ruler. You can just do the 50% I'm, Zacchaeus. I'm preaching on Zacchaeus in two weeks. So. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, Give away a lot of your stuff and then go serve the poor and the needy and people who don't have anything. And I promise you, you will find yourself wanting to believe in God more. Now, that doesn't mean that it's, you know, more likely that God is there. But I promise you, anytime I go to the world's most wretched places, I walk away wanting to believe in God. I walk away wanting to believe, like you said, that there's a God who will not let this stand forever, who will come, who will make things right, who will heal all the broken wounds, who will bring healing to creation. That I don't know if that's evidence that there is a God, but I know that when I go to those places, I walk away wanting to believe in God. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, it's reminding me of something uh, the Pope said a few years ago. He was asked about panhandling. He was asked about panhandlers and, and what is like, how do you respond? Like someone begging money on the street. <laughs> he did not even hesitate. And he just said, just give them money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, just, just go ahead. Just give no, it to wait, them. Wait, wait, wait. Not just go, give them money. Yeah. Just give them money. You can probably afford it. I feel like Jesus said something. Uh, wow, like that, that right? is. Give, give to him who asks. Well, aren't they just going to use it 
aren't they just going to use it for yeah because the worst thing like ever is to be taken thing. advantage of you know uh, for a few dollars yeah 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 so um you know that's not I, do i always do that i no, not necessarily no. but um but yeah i i think that's great like oh, what's the solution to to this wanting of stuff and not getting in the way of our our faith well maybe give stuff away that's mm-hmm. good well like, we could keep thinking about it that's worked so well for us yeah, that's that's great. That's really good. Okay, well, I'll just take that into my Zacchaeus sermon in a couple of weeks. That's a short sermon, go. too. Sure. So I think people Absolutely. appreciate that. Like yeah. less than twenty minutes is good. Uh, all right, we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, everybody, here's our text. Give away fifty percent of your stuff. See you next Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, maybe I want to ask you one more thing about about stuff or about consumers. Mm-hmm. How, like, how did we get here? Um, because I don't think, like, I, I think you're right. I don't think a lot of people are jumping to that this is actually a threat to Christianity or this is what makes people walk away from faith is mm-hmm. our money or our addiction to things. People are not not really connecting those dots. Not at all. So um, I don't know. What do we do about that, I guess? <laughs> like, I guess as individuals, yes, okay, if we're, we can give away. But what, like, what, if, what do preachers do? What do, what do people do about um, or Christians do about that problem? It has been, you know, pretty laboriously noted in some circles that, uh, what, you know, 25 to 30% of Jesus's teachings about money. Yeah. And so it's almost like, you know, Jesus is saying, Hey, if you just consistently like preach and teach what I told you, <laughs> you'll actually end up talking about this stuff a lot. <laughs> and, uh, again, I do think it, it's rooted in seeing consumerism, um, as a very clear and present danger to Christian faith. And, and I know people get uncomfortable with that sometimes because they go, well, what are you saying, that we should be socialist or Marxist or whatever? And it's kind of like, no, I'm not advocating communism. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to dictate you know, governmental economic policy. I'm talking about the church. I'm a preacher. I talk to the church. I'm not preaching to our politicians. So in the church... Um, I think something like a communalism, not communism, but communalism is absolutely the picture that's painted in the New Testament. Mm. And so I think a lot of it is um, habituating our actual communities where we actually live, our actual churches, to have a vision of an economic communalism that, again, isn't communism. And I don't have any desire to tell the governments how they should do things. Um, There's some implications. But again, my focus is on my church. And so let's stop worrying about, well, you know, what would happen if no. You are being asked as a member of your particular body to make your stuff available to people who need it. Mm-hmm. Just do that. Do that and see what happens. And I say that because I think a lot of times people um, like to try to sort out all the hypothetical scenarios so they don't actually have to do anything. Right. Right. So they'd rather go, well, but what would happen, you know, Con- consumerism such a, and it's like well okay but like no one's asking you to like uh, set economic policy for the country we're asking you to make your stuff available to your community which is what jesus has asked you to do so how about you just do that instead of worrying about all these ancillary dominoes that may or may not fall i love that um you're not available in like a few weeks to come and guest preach for me right because <laughs> i think I, I can tell you're very I'll, good I'll, I'll so i don't think you need me <laughs> um I, I want to get to this too before we before I finish up. Um, you write the ultimate remedy for doubt is neither perf- perfect, doubtless faith, 
nor being honest about not having much faith. The ultimate remedy for doubt is love because love creates faith. I know I just gave away away the ending of the book. It's okay. But um, what what do you mean by that? Love creates faith and it's the ultimate remedy for doubt. So I've found that that faith, similar to happiness, is one of those things that we, we usually come by indirectly. So let's yeah. say happiness. The worst way to be happy is to try to be happy. You know, uh, If you want to be happy, then just focus on being kind and serving people and doing meaningful work. And if you aim at that, you'll indirectly end up a happy person. I think the same uh, is true of faith. When we, when we aim for faith, you know, and, and we try to convince ourselves that we're certain, which is this really strange psychological phenomenon. Um, we usually just end up either kind of fabricating some sort of pseudo certainty or we wear ourselves out. And, and again, Paul tells us that there are these three kind of core Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. And yet Paul further um, distinguishes that the greatest of these is love, not faith. Right? And so the ultimate virtue of Christian faith is love, not faith. Faith is actually just a means to love. And faith's going to be done away with one day, but love is forever. And so I think for for various reasons, we got to this place where a lot of us think of faith as what God wants most from us, Mm -hmm. when what God really wants most from us is love. Mm -hmm. Love of self, love of God, love of others. And faith just prepares the way to enable us to love others and be loved. And so I say that love is a better remedy for doubt than faith is, Because when you pour yourself out in love the way Jesus has asked you to do, I have found that that creates faith more than all the, you know, uh, mastering of philosophical, historical, rational, or experiential arguments tends to do. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good. Um, Do you think that our focus on, and I guess this isn't everywhere in the church, but in a lot of the church, we have this focus on that the real goal is just to get, like, let's get people to... Uh, believe in Jesus, and then everything else is gonna is gonna flow from that. And that's gonna be great. So our entire focus is just that's we're gonna present the gospel so that people believe in Jesus. They have yeah. faith then, and 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 we're done. Like that's our job. Mm-hmm. Um, is that had potentially a detrimental effect to people's faith? Oh, absolutely. Um, some of this I think goes back to <clears throat> the mistake of seeing faith as a binary choice between certainty and unbelief. Um, yeah. You know, faith, the content of, of, of belief is very important. Um, what to believe is very important, but just as important as what to believe is how to believe. And I think where the church has struggled is uh, we're not very good sometimes at teaching people how to believe. We're good at telling them what to believe, <laughs> but we're not very good at teaching them how to believe. And I do think how we're to believe. We're good at arguing about what they should believe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely we are. <laughs> But to say, in essence, the whole book is is meant to be kind of an expose of how to believe, yeah. even though you have doubt. And so I do think when we get so hyper-focused in on, we got to make sure we're pulling the right beliefs into people's brains, uh, we just underestimate that, A, we, we kind of live from this deeper gut level. And so um, I think more important than being like rationally convinced is being aesthetically captivated. Um, so that's vague. So um, the most determinative thing, I think, for whether or not a person believes in Jesus is whether or not a person finds Jesus desirable. Do they want to believe? And so I think when we're talking to people, we have to talk to their gut. And 
again, present the gospel as something that is beautiful, not just true, but it's beautiful. Right? It's, it's not just right. It's beautiful. Right. And when we get that part, I actually think it makes a much stronger claim on the postmodern mind in particular than all the historical and rational and philosophical arguments. The, the postmodern mind is wildly skeptical of all the historical, philosophical and rational arguments. But even the postmodern mind cannot doubt that Jesus is beautiful. Right. And so I think that's kind of the future of what any sort of apologetic has to look like. It is our job to show the world that Christianity is beautiful. And then the world will come to the conclusion that it's true on its own. I wonder too, if um, like when you love, that can get tricky and messy and difficult. Um, Like I wonder if there's something there to that, that we've kind of, sometimes the church has built up faith as actually not really uh, faith, but about a content that we can have certainty about. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. When we actually get engaged in serving somebody, loving someone yep. there for them we find oh yep. i'm with someone that i might not really like I'm, yeah i'm also yeah. with people who i disagree with that actually being engaged in something difficult actually builds it builds a more true faith like i think that's very well said like um <clears throat> greg boyd does a good job unpacking the difference in seeing faith as psychological certainty Right. And so if faith is psychological certainty, then it's primarily a matter of what's going on in my head versus um, what I think the scripture's teaching on faith is, is it's more of faith as this act of uncertain but courageous, kind allegiance. Right. That's what faith, faith is measured by your willingness to go out in the world and do what Jesus asked you to do, not by your ability to convince yourself that you're certain about brain, beliefs that you have in your brain. But you're right. It's so much easier to sit, you know, in your leather seat at Starbucks and writhe in existential angst about, you know, all these unanswered questions. Uh, that's so much easier than going and serving people who you might really, really dislike and who are inconvenient and an obstacle and nasty. And yet Jesus is very clear that the true measure of your faith is not whether or not you've mastered all the historical, rational, philosophical arguments. The true measure of your faith is whether or not you know how to go love your neighbors yourself. Yeah, that's great. Um, I always ask everybody, what spiritual practices do you engage in on a regular basis to stay connected to God? I'm really, mm-hmm. really interested to hear what you might have to say. Yeah, so certainly prayer. I mean, I, you know, Eugene Peterson, you know, who's in very poor health right now, and it's very sad. Um, he's got a section, one of his books that's uh, entitled Praying With Your Eyes Open. Mm-hmm. And that was really helpful for me to have some fixed times of prayer, morning afternoon, evening, and I have those, but to really get to this space where I've learned how to pray with my eyes open and all my day is this constant conversation with God. Um, And so that's one that's been incredibly essential for me because I don't want to ever get to this place where there are things that I'm thinking about God that I'm not saying to God. You know, I don't ever want to think anything about God. I don't say to God. And so prayer and specifically fixed time of prayer plus praying with your eyes open would be by far the most important spiritual habit I have. Uh, Sabbath is a really important one for me. Um, And I'm pretty, uh, I can actually be pretty pharisaical about Sabbath. And by that, I mean, like, I think we've become so laissez-faire in our Sabbath practices Mm -hmm. that it's just lost its ability to function the way it should. Um, and so I think a literal 24 hour Sabbath, right. That starts at a specific moment with something like the lighting of a candle that has a very specific set of boundaries, whether it's no technology, no phone on whatever it is, 
is an incredibly important thing. And we shouldn't just like kind of metaphorically have a Sabbath. We need a literal rigid Sabbath 24 hours every single week. And so that's enormously important. That's hard when you have kids. I mean, it's a catastrophe sometimes, Um, but it's incredibly important. And then a third would just be um, reading. Like I love to read. I devour books. It's one of the only, maybe the only opportunity you get to actually think with somebody else's brain. You know, I'm stuck in my own brain 24-7. It is really nice to get outside of it and see what things look like from behind somebody else's eyes. That is awesome. Uh, Thanks so much for doing this, Austin. I really have loved this conversation and highly recommend people go and grab your book. Um, If people are looking to connect with, with you or find your book, I know people can just go to Amazon and things like that, but is there somewhere people can connect with you online, like a website or anything like that? Obviously, you can get the book at um, Amazon or uh, InterVarsity's website. Um, you can go to our church's page, thevista.tv, um, and then either austinfisher.com or purpletheology.com. They both go to the same place. And it used to be a blog. I don't keep it up a lot anymore because who has time to write a blog when you have two kids and uh, a full-time books. job? But there's some stuff there I put up every once in a while. And then Twitter, Instagram, yeah. Okay. Right on. Thanks so much for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, take care. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found this one helpful. And if you are continuing to find these podcasts, uh, something that you listen to regularly and want to keep on listening to, um, I would love it if you were able to leave a review on iTunes so that other listeners can find this podcast. Um, And feel free to recommend the podcast to your friends. You can also reach out to me if you've got feedback to give to me directly or if you would like to just uh, let me know what you think or ask a question. I'm always available, so you can feel free to send me an email at matt at mattbruff.com, M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-G-H.com. And uh, I'm also fairly active on Instagram these days. There's an Instagram for this show, Spirituality for Ordinary People. If you just search for that on Instagram, you'll find it. Uh, Or just my uh, personal profile, uh, Matt or Matthew Bruff. Uh, Would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Take care.